Chapter 5 of Rainy Week by Eleanor Hallowell Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jenny McCann. In this annual Rainy Week drama of ours, one of the very best parts I double in is with the chambermaid, making beds. Once having warned my guests of this occasional domestic necessity, I ought, I suppose, to feel absolutely relieved of any embarrassing sense of intrusion incidental to the task. But there is always somehow such an unwarrantable sense of spiritual rather than material intimacy connected with the sight of a just-deserted guest-room. Particularly so, I think, in a seashore guest-room. A beach makes such big babies of us all. Country house hostesses have never mentioned it as far as I can remember. Mountains evidently do not recover for us that particular kind of lost rapture, nor even green pine woods revive the innocent lusts of the little. But in a seashore guest-room, every fresh morning of the world, as long as time lasts, you will find on bureau-top desk or table, mixed up with chiffons and rouges, crowding the tennis rackets or baseballs, blurring the open, sophisticate page of the latest French novel, that dear, absurd, ever-increasing little hoard of childish treasures." the round shining pebbles, the fluted clamshell, the wops of dried seaweed, a feather perhaps from a gull's wing, things common as time itself, repetitive as sand, yet irresistibly covetable. How do you explain it? Who in the world, for instance, would expect to find a cunningly contrived toy boat on Rollins's bureau with two starfish listed as the only passengers? Or Paul Brunswick's candle thrust into a copperous-tinted knot of waterlogged cedar? In the snug confines of a small cigar-box on a lovely dank bed of maroon and gray seaweed, Victoria Brunswick had nested her treasure-trove. Certainly the quaint garnet necklace could hardly have found a more romantic and shipwrecky sort of a setting. Even Alan John had started a little procession of sand-dollars across his mantelpiece. But there was no silver whistle figuring as the band, I noticed. What would Victoria Brunswick have said, I wondered, what would Alan John have thought, if they had even so much as dreamed that these precious shipwreck treasures of theirs had been purchased brand new in Boston town within a week and planted most carefully by my husband, with all those other pseudo-mysteries in the old trunk in the sand. But goodness me, one's got to start something on the first day of even the most ordinary house-party." With so much to watch outside the window, figures still moving eagerly up and down the edge of the cliff, and so much to think about inside, all the little personal whims and fancies betrayed by the various hordes, the bed-making industry, I'm afraid, was somewhat slighted on this particular morning. Was my husband still standing at that downstairs window, I wondered, speculating about that bungalow on the rocks, even as I stood at the window just above him, speculating on the same subject? Why did he think that Ann Walter would be the one to get there first? What had Ann Walter left there the day before that made her specially anxious to get there first? Truly this rainy week experiment developed some rather unique puzzles. Maybe if I tried, I thought, I could add a little puzzle of my own invention. Just for sheer restiveness I turned and made another round of the guest rooms. Now that I remembered it, there was a bit more sand oozing from the bride's necklace box to the mahogany bureau top than was really necessary. The rest of the morning passed without special interest, but the luncheon hour developed a most extraordinary interest in the principles of physical geography, which, beginning with all sorts of valuable observations concerning the weight of the atmosphere, or the conformation of mountains, or the law of tides, ended invariably with the one direct question, 
At just what hour this evening, for instance, will the tide be low again? My husband was almost beside himself with concealed delight. Oh, but you don't think for a moment, do you? I implored him in a single whisper of privacy snatched behind the refilling of the coffee urn. You don't think for a moment that anybody would be rash enough to try and make the trip in the big dory. Well, hardly, laughed my husband, if you'd seen where I've hidden the oars. The oars apparently were not the only things hidden at the moment from mortal ken. Claude Kenilworth and Ego still persisted quite brutally in withholding their charms from us. Rollins had retreated to the sacristy of his own room to complete his convalescence, and even Alan John seemed to have wandered for the time being beyond the call of either voice or luncheon bell. Alan John's deflection worried the May girl a little, I think, but not unduly. It didn't worry the men at all. When a chap wants to be alone, he wants to be alone, explained Paul Brunswick with unassailable conciseness. It's a darn good sign, agreed my husband, that he's ready to be alone. It's the first time, isn't it? Yes, that's all right, of course, conceded the May girl amiably, if you're quite sure that he was dressed right for it. Maybe a hike on the beach at just this moment, whether he's dressed right for it or not, asserted George Keats, is just the one thing the poor devil needs to sweep the last cobweb out of his brain. I agree with you perfectly, said Victoria Brunswick. It was really astonishing in a single morning how many things George Keats and the bride had discovered that they agreed on perfectly. It teased the bridegroom a little, I think, but anyone could have seen that it actually puzzled the bride. And women, when they are puzzled, I've noticed, are pretty apt to insist upon tracing the puzzle to its source. So that when George Keats suggested a further exploration of the dunes as the most plausible diversion for the afternoon, it wouldn't have surprised me at all if Victoria Brunswick had not only acquiesced in the suggestion for herself and her bridegroom, but exacted its immediate fulfillment. She did not, however. Quite peremptorily, in fact, she announced instead her own and her bridegroom's unalterable intent to remain at home in the big warm library by the Applewood fire. It was the May girl who insisted on forging forth alone with George Keats into the storm. "'Why, I shall perish,' dimpled the May girl, "'if I don't get some more exercise today. "'Weather like this? "'Why, why, it's so glorious,' she thrilled. "'So maddeningly glorious. "'I, I wish I was a seagull "'so I could brush right off into the foam and blast of it. "'I wish, I wish!' "'But what page is long enough to record the wishes of eighteen? "'My husband evidently had no wish in the world "'except to pursue the cataloging of shells "'in Rollins's crafty company.' Anne Walter confessed quite frankly that her whole human interest in the afternoon centered solely on the matter of sleep. Hyacinths, of course, are my own unfailing diversion. Tracking me just a little bit self-consciously to my hyacinth lair, the bride seemed rather inclined to dally a moment, I noticed, before returning to her bridegroom and the library fire. Her eyes were very interesting. What brides are not? Particularly that bride whose intellect parallels even her emotions. Maybe, she assessed quite abruptly, maybe it was a trifle funny of me not to tramp this afternoon. But the bridge-building work begins again next week, you know. It's pretty strenuous, everybody says. Men come home very tired from it, not specially sociable. So I just made up my mind, she said, in a voice that, though playfully lowered, was yet rather curiously intense. So I just made up my mind that I would stay at home this afternoon and get acquainted with my husband. Half proud, half shamed, her puzzled eyes lifted to mine. 
because it's dawned on me very suddenly, she laughed, that I don't know my husband's opinion on one solitary subject in the world. Just me. With a rather amusing little flush, she stooped down and smothered her face in a pot of blue hyacinths. Oh, hyacinths, she murmured. And may rain, the smell of them. Will I ever forget the fragrance of this week while time lasts? But the eyes that lifted to mine again were still puzzled. Now, that Mr. Keats, she faltered, why, in just an hour or two this morning, why, in just the little time that luncheon takes, I know his religion and his mother's first name. I know his philosophies and just why he adores Buskin and disagrees with Bernard Shaw. I know where he usually stays when he's in Amsterdam and just what hotel we both like best in Paris. Why, I even know where he buys his boots and why. And I buy mine at the same place and for just exactly the same reason. But my husband... Quite in spite of herself, a little laugh slipped from her lips. "'Why, I don't even know how my husband votes!' she gasped. In some magic, excitative flash of memory, her breath began to quicken. "'It—it it was at college, you know, that we met, Paul and I,' she explained, "'at a dance the night before my graduation.' Once again her face flamed like a rose. "'Why, we were engaged, you know, within a week. And then Paul went to China—' Oh, of course we wrote, she said, and almost every day, too, but— But lovers, of course, don't write a great deal about buying boots, I acquiesced, nor even so specially much about Buskin, nor even their mothers. In the square of the library doorway a man's figure loomed a bit suddenly. Vic, aren't you ever coming? fretted her impatient bridegroom. Like a homing bird she turned and sped to her mate. Yet an hour later, when I passed the library door, I saw Paul Brunswick lying fast asleep in the depth of his big leather chair. Fire wasted, books neglected, chance itself forgotten or ignored. But the bride was nowhere to be seen. I was quite right, though, when I thought that I should find her in her room. Just as I expected, too, she was standing by the window, staring somewhat blankly out at the dunes. But the eyes that she lifted to me this time were not merely puzzled, they were suffering. If Paul Brunswick could have seen his beloved at this moment, and even so much as hoped that there was a God, he would have gone down on his knees then and there, and prayed that for love's sake the very real shock which he had just given her would end in laughter rather than tears. Yet her speech when it came at last was perfectly casual. He—he he wouldn't talk, she said. Couldn't, you mean? I contradicted her quite sharply. Husbands can't, you know. Marriage seems to do something queer to their vocal cords. "'Your husband talks,' smiled the bride very faintly. "'Oh, beautifully,' I admitted. "'But not to me. "'It doesn't seem to be quite compatible with established romance somehow, "'this talking business between husbands and wives.' "'Romance?' rallied the bride. "'Would you call Mr. Delville exactly romantic?' "'Oh, very,' I boasted. "'But not conversationally.' "'But I wanted to talk,' said the bride very slowly.' "'Why, of course you did, you dear darling,' I cried out impulsively. "'Most brides do. "'You wanted to discuss and decide in about thirty minutes "'every imaginable issue that is yet to develop "'in all the long, glad years you hope to have together. "'The friends you are going to build. "'Why, you haven't even glimpsed a child's picture in a magazine "'this the first week of your marriage, "'without staying awake half the night "'to wonder what your children's children's names will be.' "'How do you know?' asked the bride, a bit incisively. "'because once I was a bride myself,' I said. "'But this Paul of yours,' I insisted, 
This Paul of yours, you see, hasn't finished wondering yet about just you. For heaven's sake, called my own husband through the half-open doorway, what's all this powwow about? About husbands, I answered, quite frankly. An argument, in fact, as to whether, taken all in all, a husband is ever very specially amusing to talk to. Amusing to talk to? hooted my husband. Never! The most that any poor husband can hope for is to prove amusing to talk about. "'Who said Paul?' called that young person himself from the further shadows of the hallway. "'No one has,' I laughed, for as much as two minutes. A trifle flushed from his nap, and most becomingly disheveled as to hair, the bridegroom stepped into the light. I heard his bride give a little sharp catch of her breath. "'I—I I think I must have been asleep,' said the bridegroom. Twice the bride swallowed very hard before she spoke. "'I—I I think you must have, you rascal,' she said. It was a real victory. Really, my husband and I would have been banged in the door if we hadn't jumped out as fast as we did. George Keats and the May girl came in from their walk just before supper. Judging from their personal appearances, it had at least been a long walk, if not a serene one. George Keats, indeed, seemed quite unnecessarily intent in the vestibule on taking the May girl to task for what he evidently considered her somewhat careless method of storing away her afternoon's accumulation of pebble and shell. Every accent of his voice, every carefully enunciated syllable, reminded me only too absurdly of what the May girl had confided to me about boys always trying to make her feel small. He was urging her now, I inferred, to stop and sort out her specimens according to some careful cotton-batting plan which he suggested. "'Whatever is worth doing at all, you know, Miss Davies,' he said, "'is worth doing well.' The May girl's voice sounded very tired, not irritable, but very tired. "'Oh, if there's anything in the world that I hate,' I heard her cry out, "'it's that proverb!' "'What people really mean by it,' she protested, "'is... Whatever's worth doing at all is worth doing swell. And it isn't either. I tell you I like simple things best. All I ever wanted to do with my shells tonight is just to chuck em behind the door. Truly, if Claude Kenilworth hadn't turned up for supper, all in white flannels and looking like a young god, I don't know just what I should have done. Everybody seemed either so tired or so distraught. The tide would be low at ten o'clock. It was eight o'clock when we sat down to supper. Anne Walter, I'm sure, never took her eyes from the clock. But to be perfectly frank, everybody else at the table, except the May girl, seemed to be diverting such attention as he or she retained to the personal appearance of Claude Kenilworth. Truly, it wasn't right that anyone who had been so hateful all day long should be able to look so perfectly glorious in the evening. "'Where did you get the suit?' said Rollins. "'Is it your own?' "'And the permanent wave?' questioned the bride. "'I think you and the ocean must patronize the same hairdresser.' "'Dark men always do look so fine in white flannels,' whispered Ann Walter to my husband. "'Personally,' beamed Paul Brunswick, "'you look to me like a person who had imported his own Turkish bath.' "'Turkish?' scoffed George Keats. "'Nobody works up a shine like that by being washed only in one language. "'Russian, too, it must be. Flemish.' "'Flemish are rabbits.' observed the May girl gravely. But even with this observation, she did not lift her eyes from her plate. Whether she was consciously and determinedly ignoring Claude Kenilworth's only two palpable efforts to impress her with the fact that now at last he was ready to forgive her and subjugate her, or whether she really hadn't noticed him, I couldn't quite make out. 
and then quite suddenly, at the end of her first course, she put down her knife and fork and folded her hands in her lap. "'Where is Alan John?' she demanded. "'Why, yes, that's so. Where is Alan John?' questioned everybody all at once. "'Some walk he's taking,' reflected Paul Brunswick. "'Not too long, I hope,' worried my husband very faintly. "'Hang it all, I do like that lad,' acknowledged George Keats. "'Who wouldn't?' said young Kenilworth. "'Yes, but why?' demanded Keats. "'It's his eyes,' said the bride. "'Eyes nothing,' scoffed young Kenilworth. "'It's the way he came out of his fuss without fussing. "'To make a fool of yourself but never a fuss, "'that's my idea of a fellow being a good sport.' "'It was his tragedy that I was thinking of,' said George Keats very quietly. "'Yes, where in the world,' questioned my husband, with quite unwanted emotion, "'would you have found another chap in the same harrowing circumstances, "'even among your own friends, I mean, a chum, a pal, "'who could have dropped in here the way he has, without putting a damper on everything? "'Not intentionally, of course, but just in the inevitable human nature of things. "'But I don't get the slightest sense, somehow, of Alan John being a damper.' "'Damper?' said the bride. "'Why, he's like a sick man basking in the sun. "'Hasn't a word to say himself, not a single prance in his own feet. "'But I'd as soon think of shutting out the sun from a sick man "'as shutting out a laugh from Alan John. "'Why, Alan John needs us,' attested the bride. "'And Alan John knows that he needs us.' "'With a sideways glance at the vacant chair, "'George Keats's thin lips parted into a really sweet smile. "'Where in creation is the boy?' he insisted. "'Frankly, I think we rather need him.' "'All of which being the case,' conceded my husband, "'it behooves me even once more, I should say, "'to tell Alan John that the next time he speaks about moving on "'I shall hide his clothes. "'Certainly I haven't trusted him yet with even a quarter. "'He's so extraordinarily fussy about thinking that he ought to clear out.' "'It was just at that moment that the telephone rang.' I decided to answer it myself, for some reason, from the instrument upstairs in my own room, rather than from the library. A minute's delay, and I held the transmitter to my lips. "'Yes?' I called. "'Is this Mrs. Jack Delville?' queried the voice. "'Yes. Who's speaking?' "'It's Alan John,' said the voice. "'Why, Alan John,' I laughed, "'of course it would be you. We were just speaking about you, and that's always the funny way that things happen. But wherever in the world are you?' We'd begun to worry a bit. I'm in town, said Alan John. In town, I cried. Town? How did you get there? In Alan John's voice, suddenly, it was as though tone itself was fashion. That's what I want to tell you, said Alan John. I've done a horrid thing, a regular kid college boy sort of thing. I've taken something from your house, that silver salt cellar you know that I forgot to give back, and left it with a man in the village as a security for the price of a railroad ticket to town, and a telegram to my brother, and this phone message. I didn't have a cent, you know. But the instant I hear from my brother— Why, you silly, I cried. Why didn't you speak to my husband? Oh, your husband, said Alan John, just a bit dryly, would have given me the whole house. But he wouldn't let me leave it and it was quite time I was leaving. The voice quickened sharply. I had to leave some time, you know, and all of a sudden I—I I had to leave at once. Rollins, you know, his break about the little girl. After young Kenilworth's covishness, I simply couldn't put another slight on that lovely little girl. But—his voice was all gray and again spent like ashes. But I just couldn't play, he said. Not that. Why, of course you couldn't play, I cried. 
Nobody expected you to. Rollins is a... a horror. Oh, Rollins is all right enough, said Ellen John. It's life that is the horror. Yes, but Ellen John, I parried. You people have been angels to me, he interrupted me sharply. I shall never forget it, nor the lovely little girl. I'm going back to Montana to see how my ranch looks. I can't talk now, not to anybody. For God's sake, don't call anybody. But if I get straightened out again, ever, you'll hear from me. And if I don't... But Alan John, I protested, everybody will be desolated you're going off like this. Why, you're not even equipped in the simplest way. Not a single bit of baggage, not a personal possession. Across the buzzing wires, it seemed suddenly as though I could actually hear Alan John making one last really desperate effort to smile. I've got my little silver whistle, said Alan John, as though in confirmation of the fact he lifted the silver bauble to his lips and blew a single fluty note across the sixty miles. Goodbye, he said. Before I had fairly dropped the receiver back into its place, the May girl was at my elbow. Her lovely childish eyes were strangely alert, her radiant head cocked ever so slightly to one side, as though she held a shell to her listening ear, but there was no shell in her hand. "'What was that?' cried the May girl. "'I thought I heard Alan John's whistle.'" End of chapter 5